Hello, welcome to a podcast for The Lancet Neurology. I'm Gavin Cleaver. It's January 2019, and our new issue contains a paper on the Rush Memory Aging Project. I'm joined by two of the authors, Lindsay Wallace and Kenneth Rockwood, on the line to discuss further. Thank you for your time today. So perhaps we could uh, start off by providing a little bit of background to the Rush Memory Aging Project. What, what were your aims for your current study? So the Rush Memory and Aging Project is a longitudinal epidemiologic cohort study that includes both clinical and pathologic data on thousands of people now. Um, it was initiated in 1997 and originally designed as a complement to a previous study, the Religious Order Study. And the aim of these studies was um, collecting information on age-related conditions particularly cognitive decline, and uh, trying to figure out generally what allows us to remain free of cognitive decline, um, even in light of things like neuropathology. Uh, So it enrolled participants from continuous care retirement communities in the greater Chicago area in the United States who did not have dementia at baseline and agreed to annual clinical evaluations and also agreed to donate their organs um, after they've died. So the motivation for our inquiry was to understand why it is that dementia chiefly occurs in old people. So what is it about aging uh, that makes people more susceptible to dementia? We know from a large body of work that um, people who are frail, uh, which is to say they have uh, more things wrong with them than other people the same age, uh, are at risk for a large number of adverse health outcomes and also at risk for dementia. So the opportunity to work with the uh, RASH data in which we could look at the neuropathology seems to us to be an excellent and important step in trying to understand how it is that frail people are at greater risk for cognitive impairment, particularly dementia. So, Ken, perhaps you could explain for our listeners the different approaches used to define frailty and why you chose the particular approach that you did. So it's generally conceded that there are two main approaches to defining frailty. One is that it's a specific phenotype or syndrome consisting in things like um, uh, weight loss and uh, reduced grip strength. Uh, and reduction in activities uh, and uh, motor slowing and a feeling of exhaustion. So it implies a certain specificity. And the other view is that it's a general state at risk and that any of the health deficits which become more common with age, and and a deficit can be anything, symptom sign, laboratory, abnormality, um, something that has met a formal diagnosis uh, or not, all these things accumulate, and the more things people have wrong with them, the more likely they are to be frail. That second one is called the deficit accumulation approach. Uh, it's the one that we used here. It's the one that we uh, develop, so we're particular to it from that standpoint. But it, the reason we chose it, um, other than the logic it makes because we understand it well, is that it's been related epidemiologically to um, the uh, risk of dementia, and also because many of the items that are in the frailty phenotype, such as motor slowing, for example, or weight loss or reduction in activities, these things are all known to be risk factors for dementia anyway. So it, it seemed to us that there wasn't a lot of value added by demonstrating that they were be associated with a pathology. And the approach that we took was to look at uh, health-related deficits Uh, that for the most part were not associated with dementia. So as a sensitivity analysis, we took out the ones that were most closely associated with dementia, and we still found that frailty was important in understanding who is at greatest risk 
of expressing the neuropathology that they might have. Um, Lindsay, do you want to add anything to that? I, I think the other reason to go with deficit accumulation approach is that we're really agnostic with respect to which deficits people count, so that makes it more generalizable. Uh, from our standpoint, if something is associated with age and it's somehow bad for you, uh, then it will count as a health deficit. So, for example, say if left-handedness was bad for you, which we don't know that it is, um, and, and uh, uh, we, we wouldn't... Uh, we wouldn't count that as an age-related health deficit uh, because it doesn't change with age, it's fixed for the most part. Um, in the same way, we know that gray hair um, is uh, associated with aging, and speaking as a gray-haired, even white-haired man, um, I'm pleased to see that it doesn't actually uh, turn out to be bad for you and therefore wouldn't be counted as a health deficit. After that, the only considerations we have are technical with respect to how the missing data work and so on. But um, 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 just based on those two things, something can be counted as a health deficit. And remarkably, as it turns out, um, it doesn't matter what number of things people count or which ones uh, they count. Um, the more things people have wrong with them that qualify as health deficits, the greater the risk for a variety of adverse outcomes. So that's to say that this approach is quite generalizable. You don't have to have measured a particular number of characteristics to find the same uh, type of relationship in a given data set. And so we think this will promote a, a more widespread uptake and understanding of the work. The big question, tell us what you found and maybe give us a little insight into what the implications could be for clinical practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are three main findings that I'm going to touch on here. Um, the first one is that people with Alzheimer's type dementia um, we found that they had a lower burden of neuropathology but the highest frailty levels. Um, and likewise, the frailty levels were no higher than average in people with no Alzheimer's dementia, but they had a high burden of um, AD pathology. So our second main finding was that uh, frailty improves the fit of a model relating pathology to dementia status. And then we probed this further um, using a moderation model to find that frailty is a significant moderator in the relationship between um, Alzheimer's type pathology and dementia. So. Um, these are really important findings for us. We came from the standpoint of trying to figure out how dementia arises. Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia, and we know that, especially in population-based studies, uh, the neuropathology of Alzheimer's is not a great predictor of who's going to get the clinical syndrome of dementia. So these results kind of suggest that frailty influences um, the ability to tolerate Alzheimer's neuropathology and therefore remain free of dementia such that it may reduce the threshold of pathology needed to cause clinical disease or even act as a marker of impaired repair processes that might otherwise allow for pathology to be tolerated. Um, so this kind of opens the door for uh, new interventions, new therapies that could target frailty as well as the neuropathology and sort of recognize um, an emerging conceptualization of Alzheimer's disease and dementia as um, multiple like diseases of that are multiply determined. They have multiple mechanisms and pathways, um, and the therapies that we need to create for them will need to account for that rather than just um, be really specific to certain proteins and certain um, abnormalities. Uh, so I think those are the main implications of this work. So just to inform future research um, on prevention of Alzheimer's disease um, in dementia. That's great. Perhaps 
on the other hand as well you could tell us a little bit about the limitations of your study and maybe tell us a little bit about what some of the next steps will be for you after this. Yeah, so as with any study there's um, always limitations. Uh, for this uh, analysis it was cross-sectional. We do have a rich data set and we do plan to do um, longitudinal analyses next but this was sort of our, our first stab at it. And so that being said we had measurements very close to death in most people um, and so we were able to measure frailty and cognition within a year of death generally, um, and then their neuropathology at the time of death. Uh, but we need to probe further to see if this is a true a longitudinal association. Secondly, um, this population, because they were taken from retirement communities, uh, they were non-representative. That can be a problem for multiple reasons. Um, we did choose this data set specifically because um, they do have more dementia and more age-related disease than most people as they are in communities with continuing care. Um, but we plan to sort of extend our findings or our analyses to a population-based study to see if this, um, this holds. Our next steps will address each of these. And in the longitudinal analysis, we need to be sure to take care um, in looking at competing risks because if people die early, there's always the chance that they could have gotten dementia if they lived longer. Um, so that's something that we're going to be taking into consideration for the longitudinal analysis, but we couldn't do here in the cross-sectional analysis. I've, I've worked in, in this area for a long time, and um, it seems to me that that the dementia field is in need of a reset. So there has been the dominant view that Alzheimer's disease arises as a consequence of single protein abnormality. And however true that might be, um, it doesn't account for all the disease expression that we see. So there has been a move to recast Alzheimer's disease as something that people can have without dementia, and the data would appear to be in support of that. But the consequences that uh, inevitably everyone who has um, Alzheimer's uh, disease pathology is going to express the dementia that needs to be addressed again. It needs to be looked at in a new way if we're truly to make headway. And it may be that not only are there other single protein abnormalities that are, are important with regard to brain function, but that in some way that's important, uh, the expression of dementia is going to reflect the overall state of health that people have. And so the approach that one would take with regards to dementia prevention would vary uh, if it turns out that the more general public health understanding of it is true. In other words, if it's not just going to be uh, tackling one or two or three or four or five proteins, but looking at health more generally, and in particular looking at age more generally. I think there's been something of a false dichotomy between uh, the people who've said that Alzheimer's disease arises from whichever single protein abnormality they're most interested in, and the people whose work has been uh, construed as saying that it's an inevitable part of aging. I think what we show is that um, it's not an inevitable part of aging because there are people who don't develop the dementia, either because they don't have the neuropathology or because they have the neuropathology and they don't express it. It's a bit specious to say, well, if only they'd lived long enough, then they would have shown it because they're going to die of something, and the idea of competing risks needs to be um, applied and understood, and it's fairly non-controversial um, uh, how that might proceed. So as we try and think about the form that a reset might take, focusing on 
aging itself and aging processes is a reasonable consequence of um, the work which has come out here. And I think it's an argument that, though extremely unfashionable five years ago, is uh, having new takers, particularly now in the era of so-called analytic drugs or um, other approaches that profitably and plausibly seem to be related to uh, attenuating the effects of aging. I just want to say thanks both very much for your, for your time today.